everybody. This is Aaron Good, and you're listening to the American Exception Podcast. This episode is part two of our Destiny Betrayed series on the JFK assassination. Hey there, this is Abby Martin from the Empire Files and Media Roots Radio. Today we are fortunate to be hearing from journalist and historian David Talbot. After founding Salon.com and serving as its executive editor for more than a decade, David Talbot decided to write a book on the John F. Kennedy administration. Specifically, he wanted to tell the unknown story of Robert F. Kennedy's efforts to solve the mystery behind his brother's assassination. To write this account, Talbot spent years doing research and conducting dozens of interviews with virtually all key surviving members of the Kennedy circle. In 2007, he completed the book, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. Brothers follows the two Kennedy brothers and their efforts to navigate an extremely tumultuous period in U.S. history. The brothers confronted crises on multiple fronts. They faced down racists in their own party, even as the segregationist wing remained a crucial pillar of any Democratic coalition. The Kennedys clashed with the corporate overworld, as evidenced by their disputes with Time Life publisher Henry Luce essentially the leading publicist for Wall Street's Council on Foreign Relations. The Kennedy brothers went after organized crime like no prior administration. Tellingly, it was Robert Kennedy's Justice Department that put Teamster President Jimmy Hoffa in prison, and it was President Richard Nixon who released Hoffa by commuting his sentence in 1971. But by far, the Kennedys' most dangerous enemies were within the military, and intelligence agencies. As historian and Kennedy advisor, Arthur Schlesinger put it, quote, we were at war with the national security people, end quote. After being sandbagged by the CIA and the military in an attempt to persuade JFK to invade Cuba during the Bay of Pigs fiasco, the young president vowed, quote, to splinter the CIA in a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds, end quote. Of the military's joint chiefs, he said, quote, those sons of bitches with the fruit salad just sat there nodding, saying it would work, end quote. Early in his presidency, Kennedy realized he'd made a mistake by believing that, quote, the military and intelligence people have some secret skill not available to ordinary mortals, end quote. Ultimately, Kennedy's moves to end the Cold War and support third world nationalism were deemed unacceptable by the Pentagon, the CIA, and America's corporate power elite. The assassination in Dallas represents an exercise of the secret government's veto power over democracy. It speaks to the power of these entities that the nation's top lawman, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, believed that he was powerless to confront his brother's killers. And brothers, David Talbot presents this tragic and suppressed story in riveting detail. We are fortunate now to have David Talbot in conversation with our host, Aaron Good. David Talbot, it's great to be talking with you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. So we're going to be talking about your book, Brothers, which came out in 2007, I believe. You wrote at Salon, you founded Salon, you used to work at Mother Jones before that, so you had a lot of experience in journalism. And I, I recall a long time ago, I don't know if this is going to make you sad for me to bring this up, that you wrote an article at Salon with something with the title of The Man Who Solved the Kennedy Assassination. It was about Robert Blakey. You're going to embarrass me, huh? 
Well, I worked for Barack Obama, so I'm used to revising my views as I learn more things, which I think is, is really what any honest intellectual person should do. So how did you end up writing the book Brothers? What led you to write this book? Because it's, it's the book I recommend is like the first book that people should read to understand the Kennedy presidency and assassination. I think it's a phenomenal book. What led your views to evolve and, and motivate you to write this book? Well, thank you, Aaron, for, for saying that. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, as a journalist, and you probably have, have had this experience too, we learn in public sometimes. And so our earlier writing about subjects is often not fully formed or complete, or in my case, accurate. <laughs> so I began writing about the Kennedy assassination. Actually, even before the article you mentioned, I was editing the Sunday magazine of the newspapers here in San Francisco. It was called Image, that magazine. And my first article appeared after Oliver Stone's film, JFK, came out in 1991. And that film blew my mind. I felt, you know, that he had explained to me what happened in Dallas. And I was like most journalists, though, very conflicted with the idea about a conspiracy and so forth. And that it was the third rail. And I knew enough about journalism at that point to know that anyone who went there deeply into the subject of the Kennedy assassination was touching the third rail, a very heavy taboo in American journalism. But Oliver had really roiled you know, everything in America and, of course, forced Congress to pass the JFK Records Collection Act which compelled the release of a lot of documents. As we know, not all the documents, they're still being withheld at this late date, many of them, many relevant ones, by the CIA against the law. President Biden so far seems to be going along with them on that. But Oliver did at least crack open the long-standing kind of writing of thousands of JFK-related documents now, I began to, I couldn't devote myself full time to it. I had a day job as an editor. I started Salon, as you said, in 1995, but it always intrigued me, the subject. And I learned, as I say, in public. At first, I came to the conclusion that the mafia was indeed the primary agent behind the assassination of President Kennedy. And I agreed with Bob Blakey, Robert Blakey, who is, of course, a chief counsel, the chief counsel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the 1970s. And Bob had come from that background, had worked in Bobby Kennedy's Justice Department as a prosecutor of organized crime. And that was his bias. He really was looking heavily at the mafia's role. And I think they did play some role in the assassination. But it was above their pay grade, the assassination, and certainly the cover-up. So at one point, I thought Blakey got it right. I wrote an article in Salon saying that, saying the mafia basically was the main culprit behind the assassination. My thinking evolved as I did more research. And frankly, the opening, the aha moment for me came about two years before my book was published, Brothers, probably three years before. I just had just begun to do research. I knew I was going to leave Salon at that point. And the subject really haunted me still at that point was the Kennedy assassination and trying to figure out what really happened. So the aha moment was when I read that Bobby Kennedy, who was, of course, his brother's devoted protector, the attorney general in that administration, the one who knew more about the dark side of power, probably, as Arthur Schlesinger said, than any other living American at the time. When I read that he doubted the Warren report, 
and that he himself was privately looking into the case with the idea of opening up again if he had made it back to the White House in 68. Do you know where you read that? Was that with Mark Lane? No, I remember reading in a book, I think, about Bobby. I think it was Schlesinger's book, which was is still the best biography of Robert Kennedy, Arthur Schlesinger. And I think there was a, an elliptical passing remark that Bobby Kennedy had not fully embraced the Warren Report. And that, to me, was very intriguing. And that's all I needed to know. From that point on, I knew I had to interview every living person who was connected to Bobby, who had worked closely with him. Dick Goodwin, Adam Walensky, Peter Edelman, Robert McNamara, people who were in the first Kennedy presidency, who were in the only Kennedy presidency, Ted Sorensen, Arthur Schlesinger, and they were all living at that time, Nick Katzenbeck. And I interviewed all of them. I interviewed dozens of people who had worked closely with both Kennedys. And I found out that Bobby Kennedy, who, as I say, had been the attorney general, the chief hunter of organized crime in America from the Senate Rackets Committee in the 1950s on, he himself believed that it was a high domestic conspiracy that had claimed the life of his brother, and he was going to reopen the case if he'd made it back to the White House. So once I did that, I started following Bobby's path, his investigative path, and that's what Brothers is based on. The interesting thing about your book is that I credit your book with really firmly establishing what Robert Kennedy thought about the assassination because, as you said, you, you mentioned the Schlesinger biography, which mentions it in passing. And then there's also this, I mean, there's a 1975 interview. It's on YouTube. It wouldn't have been widely accessible until now, probably. But like it's a event with like Peter Dell Scott and Dick Gregory and Mark Lane. And Mark Lane talks about RFK and his back channel talks with the Garrison investigation. And so these things actually were out there, but yet had never really been established in the public consciousness. In fact, it was the RFK thing was sort of used as a propaganda line to say like, well, if there was a conspiracy, don't you think Robert Kennedy would have done something? But it speaks to the power of these people that the attorney general of the United States felt they were beyond his reach. You're right. The CIA did use Bobby Kennedy's silence about the Warren Report to confirm their theory that, of course, they got it right. The Warren Report was correct. but as I document very heavily in Brothers, from day one, Bobby Kennedy was the original conspiracy theorist. He knew. He sent his top investigator, Walt Sheridan, to Chicago to look into the background of Jack Ruby. Frank Mankiewicz, who was Bobby Kennedy's press spokesperson when he was senator and ran for president in 68, Frank Mankiewicz told me that when Bobby looked at the records, the phone records of Jack Ruby in the days before he shot Oswald in Dallas, that it read like the witness list of the Senate Rackets Committee. They were all organized crime figures. Jack Ruby was completely mobbed up. So what was he doing shooting Oswald, silencing him just days after the assassination, that, week, that the very weekend? So the whole thing, Bobby smelled the rat right away. And I it talked to Ed Guthman, another top-level person who worked with Bobby, part of his band of brothers at the Justice Department. I interviewed every living person who was connected to Bobby. They all said that Bobby immediately smelled a rat and thought that this assassination had grown out of the government's plot against uh, Cuba, against Castro, and involved the CIA, the mafia, and right-wing Cuban exiles. But the CIA was the dominant agency. Bobby knew that. The CIA had gone to the mafia early on to work with the mafia to kill Castro. They used the mafia to do their dirty work. 
So he knew that it was a two-headed or three-headed with the Cuban exiles, Gorgon, and that he knew was probably the source of the conspiracy against his brother. Yeah, the Ruby mob stuff is really wild because, and, and from the RFK angle even, because he wrote his book about organized crime, The Enemy Within, right? That was the name yeah. of it. And, and he mentions that murder of the junk handlers union president as being, you know, a pivotal moment in the, you know, the mob teamsters pension takeover, right? And Jack Ruby was like a, the witness in the room, the only witness to that murder. He was in the room when that murder happened. I mean, he was involved in all of these events. Like it had to be a little terrifying for Robert Kennedy to realize that these sort of networks, because he, the enemy within and, the, and his struggles to go after these people, but also to document the kind of level of corruption, which went beyond just some Italian bosses in this or that neighborhood. It was something much more systemic. That book reads in a way as like a early attempt to like deal with the American deep state in a way, or or a big a big part of it. Like he he saw them as being intertwined with society, and then he couldn't do anything about it. It's just it's it's remarkable. I think you're making the right connections. The connections that Bobby Kennedy himself made as the chief investigator, chief counsel for the Senate Rackets Committee in the 1950s, which he brought his brother into, by the way, then senator. John Kennedy, and because he wanted his brother to actually take credit for some of this investigation. But you're right. Bobby just wasn't interested in a few Italian godfathers. He was mostly concerned about how intertwined organized crime was becoming with the labor movement, the political culture in America, with big business. What we've seen in, in many other countries, I just read this morning about corruption in South Africa and how damaging that's been for one presidency after the other, and now for the current administration there. And so Bobby Kennedy saw these alliances, these dark alliances being made, and it was a kind of violent underworld of power that he understood. And he, I think he understood better than any other public figure. And he educated his brother, JFK, about it. So I think that when he heard in 1962, directly from the CIA, from the chief counsel of the CIA and from the head of security, that they had made an alliance with the mafia to kill Castro. He was genuinely angry, furious, and stunned that the CIA would be doing business with gangsters, the gangsters he was trying to put in jail. So this, to Bobby, was a sign that this dark alliance, as you say, had really penetrated the top levels of American government. And he not only wanted to go after that underworld, you know, political economy, but he felt that there wasn't sufficient public understanding of it. So he writes the book and you document in Brothers how he couldn't get that made into a movie despite being who he was. Yeah, to me, that's a, an amazing story. And as far as I know, I'm the only one who's looked into it in any depth. He had Bud Schulberg, who had won the Academy Award for his screenplay for On the Waterfront, write a screenplay. I read the screenplay. It's dramatic. It's riveting. It's about Bobby Kennedy's attempt to crack down organized crime in America. These thugs who were actually, as you say, becoming more and more linked with the top levels of power. And he had Paul Newman, a major actor, going to play him as the lead. They had a great producer, Jerry Wald, who was a very prominent producer in Hollywood at the time. So the project looked like it was definitely going to get made. And then Jerry Wald died of a heart attack at age, I think, 49. He dropped dead suddenly of a heart attack. 
And then every studio from then on that was uh, flirting with doing the movie was soon put under enormous pressure from organized crime, from the Teamsters Union, and from other unions in Hollywood that were also mob-connected. And so no studio would touch it. They threatened them. Bud Schilberg tells the story of a movie star who was supposed to play a leading role in the film, came to him in tears when I sang, they're going to kill me if I do this movie. So that's kind of like, you know, leverage they had over Hollywood. And if they could stop the attorney general, the second most powerful person in the country, and, you know, top people in Hollywood, creative people, from making this film, then they had the power to do anything. So uh, they knew they had this power, though, organized crime, because they had become so intertwined with major institutions like the CIA. Right. It's that aspect of it. Peter Dale Scott and his discussions on the deep political system of the United States, you can see that articulated there, but it's on the fringes of academia because it's kind of too much for academia to deal with. And then you you see it rendered. I actually think that the Scorsese Boardwalk Empire, you know, said at the time that it is really is like a an earlier 20th century version of the deep political system of the United States because the protagonist, I don't know if you've seen the whole series, but the protagonist He's a Democratic Party boss and functionary in the party, but then he just becomes this crime boss, basically, and is a big part of Atlantic City all around. And so it's like there's so much overlap between the legitimate system and this underworld that it's kind of one thing. It's not the legitimate side and then, oh, there's some bad people doing some other stuff. It's like the the overworld of of power and the legitimate legitimate system is intertwined. It relies on the underworld in different ways. Well, I think the Kennedys felt they could take on these powerful centers of, of dark power. And they, you have to say, because of their wealthy background and the way they were raised, felt that they could win and that they could take them on. Bobby Kennedy was warned that the Teamsters had staked out his house in Hickory Hill, suburban uh, Washington, Virginia, the state where he was raising at the time, I believe, eight children. Finally, he had 11 kids, I think, he and Ethel. And yet, you know, there was no bodyguards, there was no security there. But these thugs were basically scouting the house, uh, had it under surveillance. Jimmy Hoffa later was reported to have issued death threats against him, the head of the Teamsters Union. Uh, And when Bobby was told about this as attorney general, he just shrugged his shoulders, laughed it off, and continued driving to work in his convertible, an open car. They they planned to shoot him with a sniper or throw a bomb, a firebomb, into his house and kill everyone in the house, his whole family. So it was a kind of reckless courage the Kennedys had. JFK himself, as I write in Brothers, talked more and more about assassination and about coups throughout his uh, thousand days in the White House. He was aware, he had very, uh, I think, sensitive political feelers about the kind of animosities that his policies were incurring in Washington. The military-industrial complex, the Pentagon, the CIA, the mafia were all furious and wanted to get rid of him. He went to his friend, John Frankenheimer, the director in Los Angeles, and asked him to make a movie version of the best-selling novel, Seven Days in May, which is about an attempted military coup against a Democratic president in Washington. And the people, the two journalists who wrote that book, did it after interviewing Curtis LeMay, the head of the Air Force, who hated Kennedy, thought that you could win a nuclear war even if 20 or 30 million people were killed in the process. Kennedy thought he was a madman, President Kennedy. And these were the people that he had to deal with. 
they thought Kennedy in return was a coward. It was a weakling, just like in the, uh, the movie Seven Days in May. So Arthur Schlesinger told me that Kennedy had appealed to John Frankenheimer, the director, to make this movie as a warning to the American people about the kind of pressures on him that were building within Washington, the kind of threats against his presidency. And as I say, he joked about it, he talked about it, assassination several times to friends and so on in the days before he was finally killed. I think he knew it was coming. The part about the Seven Days in May film, which has a lot of interesting stuff in it, it actually mentions continuity of government at one point, which I think is one of the only mentions around that time. It probably wasn't even noticed by people, and it mentions Raven Rock, which also I think, you know, Peter Duff Scott has made the argument, and I kind of build on this too in my book that's coming out soon, that continuity of government or that sort of doomsday project with the communications network and a kind of overriding authority, so it's totally opaque. But it allows, you know, people to assert exceptionalist overriding authority, basically, that may have actually played a part in that. So it may have been CIA and military intelligence and whatever that COG apparatus is that somehow was brought to bear on that and then could have been defined as a matter of national security. But that movie is so specific and then it comes out and people just, how does it not make a bigger splash that that the movie comes out after Kennedy's death? It should have. People should have seen it for what Kennedy intended it to be, a warning that the national security state was taking over America. I think the national security state grew in conjunction with the growth of the U.S. empire in the 20th century. And by the time Kennedy came along in 1961 in office, it was a very powerful enemy. And of course, President Eisenhower warned the country at the end of his presidency and his farewell speech about the so-called military-industrial complex. Now, it was easy for him old Ike to warn us about it because he'd overseen the vast growth of the military industrial complex during his two terms as president. And then he kind of just threw it in Kennedy's lap and and left uh, Washington, sort of a convenient exit. But Kennedy took it on right away. He fires Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, right after the Bay of Pigs disaster in Cuba. He eases them out the door. He treats them honorably, has him to the White House, says he's, you know, performed great service over the years to the nation and so on. But Alan Dulles was very bitter, very resentful about his defenestration from American government. He'd served every president since Woodrow Wilson. He felt that he and his brother Foster, who had died, who was Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles under Eisenhower, that they were American power, that they and people like them and the clients they served when they were corporate lawyers in Wall Street, Walt mm-hmm. Sullivan, Cromwell, and later in Washington, that the powerful men that they served as lawyers and later as heads of government in Washington, that was the true American power. People like the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, and the other families who they represented. Douglas Dillon, who was head of the Treasury and the Secret Service, ominously under President Kennedy, was another close friend of Alan Dulles. And what does Alan Dulles do at age, what, 67 or so when he's forced out by uh, President Kennedy? Does he go quietly into the uh, twilight? No. He goes back to his home in Georgetown and he sets up a government in exile, as I document in my other book, The Devil's Chessboard. And people continue to report to him. People high up in the CIA, like Richard Helms, James Angleton, Howard Hunt, came to his doors, sat down with him, 
They didn't treat John McCone, the guy who Kennedy had put in his place as the director of the CIA. They continued to treat Alan Dulles. And I think Alan Dulles has to be a major figure of suspicion for anyone who does any kind of serious research about the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, he seems to have been undermining Kennedy's foreign policy before Kennedy even took office because there's that famous picture of uh, Kennedy on February 13th, 1961, where he's got his, he's on the phone and his, his head is buried in his hand. He's looking very despondent. It's him getting the news about Patrice Lumumba's death. And the, you write in Devil's Chessboard, which I think maybe the Alan Dulles discussion mostly will be for a later episode, maybe next year. But you mentioned that this was likely expedited, this assassination, because Dulles and, and company knew that Kennedy's policy towards African nationalism was different. That's right. The CIA was undermining JFK from the time he was elected, even before he was sworn in as president. As you say, they were behind the, the torture and the brutal assassination of Patrice Lumumba in Congo, formerly the Belgian Congo. He was a charismatic nationalist leader, not a communist, as he was accused of being, but someone who wanted to nationalize the huge mining concerns owned by Belgian and American companies and represented by the Dulles brothers once again. So when they authorized or they convinced President Eisenhower that Patrice Lumumba should be the target of assassination, they were actually looking out for their own commercial interests and their clients as well as supposedly the interests of the U.S. But he was a very popular figure in Congo. He was kidnapped by uh, military within the Congo, backed by the CIA, and CIA thugs, basically, sponsored thugs, killed him. And Dulles did not even inform Kennedy about this, did not inform that he was, his life was in danger and that he was finally assassinated. And the CIA knew all about it. The CIA was behind it. And yet, during the first days of the Kennedy presidency, they kept the president in the dark. And finally, the picture you referred to, the photo by Jacques Lowe, who was a White House photographer, famous photo now of Kennedy with his face crumpling into his hand. He's just heard the terrible news about Patrice Lumumba, not from the CIA, but from Adlai Stevenson, his envoy at the UN. So they had contempt for Kennedy from day one, even before the Bay of Pigs, which uh, occurred in April of 61, shortly after he became president. As I say, they didn't even wait for him to be sworn in before they were undermining his presidency. This is the kind of arrogance that the deep state, the CIA, the national security state, whatever you want to call them, shows for elected power in this country. In retrospect, I think that Obama was presented with a similar situation. You know, whether they time it this way or not, I don't know, but I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't be surprised. But when he took office, there was that coup in Honduras uh, very early on. And I wonder if they try to establish their control of a new administration in certain ways by like not letting them even really get their bearings before they have to face some kind of decision like this. Cause it had to have been in the planning before Obama. And what did he do? Nothing. Hillary recognized the new regime, said it wasn't a coup. And then that was that. Well, look, when you assassinate a charismatic, popular, young American president, on the streets, the sunny streets in the afternoon on a major, a major American city and splatter his brains literally all over his wife, you're sending a message not only to other people who would 
challenge your power at the time. But to all future presidents, the people who make it to the White House usually are fairly savvy people, politically savvy. Bill Clinton wanted to know. He had his attorney general look into who really killed Kennedy. And he reported back to him, it's above my pay grade. So every president, I think, has been curious about this area, who really killed Kennedy, but is afraid at some point, on some level, to really challenge these people or to go there. And the media has definitely been cowed and complicit, I think, in this cover-up. And I think every political figure, every president since Kennedy has been intimidated by this because they know what the results can be if you really stand up against these people and challenge their power. Yeah, because, I mean, early in Kennedy's presidency, there were two occasions with Laos. His generals were basically saying, we pretty much must introduce troops to Laos. And he opted for a neutral solution. And then with the Bay of Pigs, he also refused to send in, you know, the U.S. military overtly. So how did these things set the stage for these early confrontations? How did they set the stage for the rest of Kennedy's presidency and the way he was going to try to deal with these forces? Well, Cuba was one of the hot spots, was one of the front lines of the Cold War. So how you resolve that question? Here's a communist nation just miles from U.S. shores. And you can't really, at this late date, imagine how volatile an issue Cuba was for people in Washington. Kennedy, as you say, is kind of sandbagged into going along with the Bay of Pigs invasion. But as I document in Brothers and Devil's Chessboard, that invasion backed by the CIA all along, I thought, was designed to be a failure. They were kind of a ragtag group of Cuban exiles. They were going to bog down the beach. But then Alan Dulles and the top generals of the Pentagon thought Kennedy would cave to pressure and panic, as most presidents would have in that situation and send in the Marines in the U.S. Air Force to save the people on the beach and to knock out Castro. He didn't. He told him he wanted this to be a quiet operation. It was by now not a quiet operation. He was furious. He thought that he'd been sandbagged by the CIA, by Alan Dulles and Richard Bissell, the number two guy at the CIA who was in charge of the Bay of Pigs operation. And he told them, I'm not going to escalate. I'm not going to have a full-out war. He thought the Soviet Union might make moves on Berlin, West Berlin at the time, and it would quickly escalate into a global confrontation with not only Cuba, but with the Soviet Union. So he pulled the plug on it, and Alan Dulles was stunned, didn't know what to do at that point. The generals were stunned. From that point on, they think Kennedy is a weak sister, as the, to use a term from seven days in May, that he's a coward, that he won't stand up to the communist threat. What Kennedy was trying to do was end the Cold War. And as Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense, of course, under Kennedy and under Lyndon Johnson, told me during my interview with him, every American should read the peace speech that he gave at American University in June 1963. It's still a remarkable speech. No American president, even today, could deliver a speech like that, in which he says, basically, we have to have sympathy for our enemies, enemies we've been taught to hate and despise for years, the Soviets, the Russians, and the communists in general. He says, we all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. We're all human beings. We all are mortal. That's powerful rhetoric. And that is the rhetoric of appeasement to the hardliners, the Cold Warriors, and the Pentagon, the CIA. They thought Kennedy was a threat to national security. 
what he was, it was a threat to the air power. And they weren't going to put up with that. And so I think that was the motivation uh, for the assassination in Dallas. I think Kennedy was trying to end the Cold War. That was the fundamental truth about the county presidency. He was also, by the way, ahead of his time on civil rights. He's not been given full credit for what he did. Uh, but his speech, with, within hours, by the way, of the peace speech, his speech uh, uh, to the nation, televised address about civil rights, also should be taught in every school, in which he says, who among us, what white citizens among us would change the color of their skin, knowing all the terrible tribulations and humiliations that uh, African Americans have to go through. Another powerful speech, and he ended by saying he was going to introduce legislation, which became the Civil Rights Act in 1964. That began under President Kennedy. But his major, I think, challenge to these people, and he challenged them on many fronts, was his efforts to end the Cold War with Cuba and with the Soviet Union. And he was doing it all through back channels, and he was escalating that effort in 1963 in the months before he was killed. If you look at his speeches in Congress, you know, when he was a congressman and senator about Algeria and the French predicament there and in, and in Indochina, he has a lot of anti-imperialist rhetoric. We mentioned before that he was sympathetic to third world nationalism, unlike his predecessor and successors. And it, it seems like, it's, I don't know if it's after the Cuban Missile Crisis or or if he had this inkling getting going into office, because he did talk about peace in his inauguration, you know, in addition to the more blustery aspects of it. But it seems like he came to understand that the Cold War itself was a structural impediment to anything positive that you would want to do in the world, that it gave the darkest forces license to basically reconstitute colonialism uh, under a new branding and so he, he tried to end it. That has to be what the big, ultimately what the biggest threat was, was his ending the Cold War. And it's funny that he'd be deemed as weak or not being strong enough when in reality for an American leader, he had the courage to take steps that threatened very powerful people and he got killed for it. And he even predicted his own demise. That takes courage. It doesn't take courage to do what these guys want you to do. It takes real courage, even up to Dallas, the eve uh, of uh, his assassination, when he tells Jackie, who was very worried about his safety in Dallas, and she, of course, the first lady, Jackie Kennedy, was with him in Dallas that day, horrible day. And he tells her on the eve of his assassination, look, if they want to shoot me a sniper from uh, some building, they're going to do it. And so he knew, and as I referred to earlier, Again and again, he would bring up the subject of assassination with friends. He joked about it in a speech at the Waldorf Astoria in 1963, and talking about the U.S. steel industry and his fight with them in 62 when they jacked up steel prices and risked uh, a inflationary uh, spiral in the U.S. economy. He really cracked down on the steel industry. He thought they'd betrayed him. They, he thought he had a deal with them and they double-crossed him. So he has his brother, who's his enforcer, Bobby Kennedy, send in federal agents. They invaded the offices of U.S. Steel and other major steel producers and put so much pressure on them, they finally caved and they withdrew their price hikes. So Kennedy, a year later, was referring to this and joked about the steel industry wanting him assassinated. He said that in public at a speech at Baltimore Astoria. But again and again, he refers to this. I think, as I said, he had an ominous sense 
that these hostilities were building against him and that at some point they were going to result in his assassination. And yet, as you say, he continued to put himself in harm's way. He refused to not go to Dallas. He had many people warning him about Dallas as a dangerous place for you at this point. Don't go there. He rode in an open convertible in Dallas. I think the Kennedys were courageous to the point of recklessness, as I say. But at that point, I don't think there's any way the Kennedys could have gotten more security. You know, Bobby Kennedy wanted the Secret Service put under his supervision as Attorney General instead of Douglas Dillon, who's a a close Confederate of Alan Dallas at the Treasury Department. It's a super, super rich establishment family, too, the Dillon. Dillon Reed, the Wall Street firm, was one of the main firms behind the creation of the CIA figures from Dillon Reed. And Alan Dulles loved going to his mansions, you know, whether they were in France or Palm Beach, Florida, and swanning around with the Dillons. They were good buddies. Dillon, when he was called before the Warren Commission, got glove treatment from Alan Dulles and the other members of the commission. Alan Dulles conveniently got himself appointed, by the way, to the Warning Commission. He lobbied to have that appointment, and uh, Lyndon Johnson, the president, put him on there, put the fox in charge of investigating the henhouse raid. So Dillon got kick glove treatment. He should have been closely interrogated. Why did uh, the security collapse around President County in, in, in Dallas? Instead, it was, how much more money can we give you so you can improve the Secret Service? It was, oh, oh Doug this, Doug that. It was very gentle questioning that he got. He should have been grilled. Why did he go on leave during the month of November when these threats were being made clear to one agency after the next? He was conveniently gone. Dylan, when uh, he should have been in charge of the Secret Service. And the fact that the Secret Service melted away the way it did in Dallas and allowed President Kennedy to be killed that way is, to this day, a mystery. It's a, an outrage and a mystery. The protection just sort of fades away. I mean, there's that famous video of, like, Kelly Ribka, I guess, trying to get on the back of the limousine, and he's getting waved back by his supervisor in the car behind, being like, no, don't. Don't ride on the president's limousine. Of course, where he was standing would have been, could have been helpful, but he, he was removed. Well, and Clint Hill was the only Secret Serviceman who did get on the, the uh, presidential limousine, of course. And he felt guilty the rest of his life that he couldn't have done more. But in general, the Secret Service detail in Dallas was derelict, at the very least, in its responsibilities. And I think that Bobby Kennedy knew about that and knew about it ahead of time, worried about the protection his brother was getting or not getting. And that's, uh, as I say, wanted to bring the Secret Service into the Justice Department so he would have personal oversight over it. Bobby Kennedy had too many things on his plate. That was the problem. That at the end of the day, JFK, as I write in Brothers, and that's why I called the book Brothers, by the way, it's about the unique relationship between these two men. JFK and Bobby Kennedy, his younger brother. Bobby Kennedy was given one task after another by his brother to oversee the CIA after the Bay of Pigs, the battle with Cuba and so on. Every sort of hot spot JFK came up during his presidency, he would hand to his brother because he was the only one that he knew he could truly trust. Not only because he was loyal to JFK, but also because he was so tough and he was such a good administrator.
Yeah, the absolute loyalty part, I think, has to be, you know, a big part of the discussion there. Um, and Bobby was very guilty after Dallas, by the way. And that's the other part of Brothers I talk about. He was over after the initial flurry. He wanted to know all everything that he could find out about Dallas, who was Jack Ruby, who was Lee Oswald, and so on. After an initial frenetic effort to get to the bottom of the crime, he goes into a deep depression. And I think partly because he blames himself. He thought he should have been able to protect his brother, which was impossible, given, of course, uh, the power of the, of the different forces against his presidency at that point. Bobby could never protect his brother, given that. But I think he did blame himself for a long, till probably he, he, his own assassination. There are these different factors that weigh in on the Kennedy assassination. And I think that you probably agree with this, that it was you can't really identify one cause as being the motive. I mean, maybe the ending the Cold War, the overarching thing, but like these individual things like Vietnam, Cuba, the clashes with corporate America, as evidenced by the U.S. steel conflict, Indonesia, Congo policy, all of these things. It was just overdetermined when you look historically at what happened. I mean, Congo today is one of the richest resource-wise countries in the world, still desperately poor. American ally Rwanda is looting it to the tune of billions and billions of dollars every year. Indonesia still has the biggest gold mine owned by that Rockefeller company, uh, Freeport, Freeport McMoran. Now it was Freeport Sulphur. These were foreign policy switches under Lyndon Johnson. The consequences reverberate to this day. I mean, there's, there's no shortage of motives for them to, to get rid of Kennedy. So you, you've already sort of answered this, but is there anything that Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy could have done potentially to avert this outcome or, I mean, now we have hindsight, but he even tried to get a movie made to warn people about all this. I mean, what was, are these things just overdetermined or, or what? I think the only thing that the Kennedys could have done that they didn't do was to move more aggressively to root out the enemy within the enemy within their own government. Now, president Charles de Gaulle, president of France did do that. He was the target of one assassination attempt after the next. And he was close to the Kennedys. He liked, of course, Jackie Kennedy was fluent in France. She was dazzled by her when the Kennedys visited France in in 1961. And I think he understood that the kind of right-wing, hard-right elements that were opposed to him, right-wing generals in his case, who tried to overthrow him and kill him, were similar to the forces that Kennedy had incited in the U.S. And what de Gaulle did was to be ruthless, frankly, and to completely remake his intelligence agency, root out everyone he felt was an enemy. There were even other assassinations on his behalf of people who were plotting against de Gaulle. And he was ruthless. He was a general. He knew how to fight these people. I think Kennedy was too as I said earlier, perhaps felt immune, both Kennedys, to the dark side of power in this country, felt that they knew about it, could could handle it, felt that it wasn't as lethal as it was. Although Kennedy, as I say, was aware of the assassination as a possibility in his own life more and more. I think they were more fatalistic and took the view that all you had to do was remove Dallas and Bissell, the CIA, and then you could take control of these agencies. But the fact is, they should have gone much deeper in cutting at the CIA. They should have 
also fired J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI and remade the FBI. Their only chance for survival, they did it up to a point, but they didn't do it deeply enough, was to remake their own government and do it in, I think, a much more traumatic way than they were really willing to do. De Gaulle did it in France. He survived. He died as an old man in his bed. And John Kennedy has head blown off in Dallas. And, and Bobby Kennedy was shot in the head, also, I feel, by conspiratorial forces in Los Angeles in 1968. Both brothers, I think, were violently removed from American power, and partly because they didn't cut deeply enough in their own government and root out the enemy within. One of the more, I think, kind of heart-wrenching parts of Brothers is the passages that deal with Robert Kennedy's back-channel discussions with Jim Garrison and how Jim Garrison warned Bobby that he should come out and, and say that he's running for president and he's going to come after his brother's killers and that that would have potentially made them less likely to want to kill him because it would look so even so suspicious it might deter them. I think this story came out after your book was written, but Larry King, the, the, the CNN journalist, you know, now he's on RT, he was friendly with Garrison. And at one point he drove Garrison to the airport and Garrison got out of the car. This would have been in like spring of 68. And he says, they're going to kill Bobby and just walks away. So Garrison knew all of this and he ends up being prophetic, obviously. And yet Bobby chose not to go that route. He would say these things to other people, but he wouldn't say it publicly, which was almost worse. I mean, it had to get back to these people what his suspicions were and that what he was going to do. And so he should have gone all out, it seems to me. Yeah, look, I think Jim Garrison, in, in retrospect, is an American hero. And of course, Oliver Stone lionized him in his film in 91, JFK. He had Kevin Costner, who was a big star at the time, play Jim Garrison, DA of New Orleans. But that was the only real attempt to get to the bottom of the conspiracy against President Kennedy. And Jim Garrison was just a lowly DA in a a sort of modest-sized American city. And he had everything in the world thrown against him. The CIA, we now know, infiltrated his office, tried to block him and stop his investigation at every turn. And it's a real tragedy that Bobby Kennedy and Jim Garrison didn't join forces. And I think it was, you have to put it mostly in Bobby, the failure to do that. That would have been a formidable investigative team if Bobby Kennedy, former attorney general, senator from New York, and Jim Garrison had joined forces. Partly it didn't happen because of Walt Sheridan, I have to say, who was Bobby's top investigator. Walt went down to New Orleans. I think he was working for NBC at the time. And he produced a notorious documentary that basically smeared Jim Garrison. And I think Sheridan's problem He was a choir boy, an Irish Catholic like Bobby. Bobby really identified with him. I think Sheridan wasn't just a malevolent figure. I think Sheridan saw Garrison as coming out of the sort of swampy corruption of New Orleans and thought that he was giving people like Carlos Marcello, who was the godfather of New Orleans, a pass. I don't know enough about sort of the politics of New Orleans at the time to comment on that, whether or not Garrison was letting organized crime get away with things. But he was certainly on the trail of the assassins, as he wrote later. And if he had joined forces with Bobby Kennedy, 
as I say, it would have been a formidable investigative operation. And I do think if anything could have protected Bobby from assassination, I agree with Jim Garrison's argument that if he'd come out publicly and said, look, I don't buy the Warren report, and I think the people who killed my brother are still out there, that would have intimidated some of these people. And they would have had to think twice about killing Bobby. You know, Jim Garrison said at one point, if it had been my brother they'd killed, I would be in a dark alley with a steak knife coming at them. And I think that's these people were ruthless, these people who killed the Kennedys. And that's the only language that they would have understood was a kind of, I think, really stern, aggressive response. I interviewed Mort Saul, because we should give out a, a shout out to Mort, the comedian who was one of the top comics in America at the time, making over a million dollars, which for the 1960s was a huge fortune. He gave up all that. His income, I think, went down to like $9,000 because he went to work for Jim Garrison, unpaid as a volunteer. And there was so much scorn directed at him from the entertainment industry, from you know, political figures for doing this, for believing in a JFK conspiracy. But he knew he was a smart man, Mort Saul. He knew he'd done the research, and he knew that there was something fishy about the Kennedy assassination. And he knew Jim Garrison was on the right trail. So he went down to New Orleans and gave up his career, basically, Mort Saul at the time, in order to help Jim Garrison. So Mort was an American hero. There were some American heroes like that who, again and again, spoke out. Mark Lane, you mentioned earlier, of course, the lawyer who became a major gadfly against the CIA and against the national security state. It's amazing they didn't kill him. They tried to smear him too and ruin his reputation. I think at some point the CIA decided that was the more effective strategy. You don't kill your enemies. You you basically tarnish them so much. Their images that American people no longer believe in them or have faith in them. I think that's what they do today. So America is no different from other countries. It's a violent, corrupt country. You know, our mythology is a lot better. Our myth-making is a lot better. Hollywood, Ken Burns, you know, PBS, they make up these myths about American history. But the fact is, the darkest, greediest, both ruthless forces have always run America. And when people stand up against it, like a Kennedy, both Kennedys, we see what happens to them. It was amazing. Amazing courage. It took a crazy courage, as Martin Luther King said, to do what the Kennedys did. And they paid the price. They're American heroes. They're martyrs. You mentioned earlier that you that you really enjoyed Oliver Stone's JFK and that you found it really compelling. And in your but in your own mind, you kind of reverted initially to the it must be some sort of organized crime mob of some sort. Other people have gone the other direction from you people who were kind of courageous about it, like Richard Sprague of the, the original counsel for the congressional investigation. He also was talking a lot about the CIA, but then later in life, he said, uh, it's some mob. It must be some mob thing. And same with um, the Senator from Pennsylvania, Schweiker. He, he made a lot of very, you know, inflammatory statements about and provocative statements about the CIA and Oswald and intelligence fingerprints all over Oswald. And then later in life, he would just sort of say the same thing about, about the mob and Sheridan also, he had some sort of version of a mafia organized crime conspiracy behind it all. It's like when confronted with it as being the pinnacle of power in our society, it leads to conclusions about the system as a whole that I think 
people, especially if they've risen in this system or are reasonably successful and have internalized the myths to some degree, they just recoil. They recoil from it. They'd rather come up with any way not to acknowledge what's staring them in the face. Well, look, the mafia didn't have the power in this country to engineer the cover-up of the assassination. So I knew right away that it had to be a more powerful force than the mafia. If it was just the mafia that had killed JFK in Dallas, the top lawman in the country was Bobby Kennedy. He knew everything there was about organized crime. He would have cracked down on them with so much severity. Anyone remotely associated with the assassination would have been thrown in prison or, or executed. So Bobby Kennedy's inability to do that shows that it was a, a powerful force, much more powerful than organized crime, the mafia that was in charge of this. This was a national security operation. And that's why it remains taboo to this day. Almost 60 years later, the CIA won't release documents to this day related to the Kennedy presidency and assassination. Look, organized crime and the CIA, though, were also intertwined. We've also talked about that. And I talk about that a lot in Brothers. And I know Peter Dale Scott, who's a good friend, and others have, have talked about how the sort of dark power in America, the deep state, organized crime comes together with the institutions of American power, like the CIA. And they do it for a basic reason, because the mafia knows how to kill people. And they're often used by the CIA to do their dirty work. But it's the CIA giving the orders. Bill Harvey, I think has to be another, was a major figure of suspicion during the House Select Committee on Assassinations investigation. Dan Hardway, who was a young investigator on the committee at the time, I know was looking closely at Bill Harvey. Bill Harvey was basically the head of black ops for the CIA. I think he brought his killing team home to kill Kennedy. So Bill Harvey has to be like one of the major figures of the suspicion of the Kennedy assassination. Now, Bill Harvey was not some rogue. He wouldn't have done this unless he knew that the old man, as they reverently called him, Alan Dulles and others had approved this and orchestrated it. So he was operating with the feeling that he had the backing of powerful people. When he brought this killing team to Dallas, he was seen by his deputy, Mark Wyatt, on a plane headed to Dallas in the days before the assassination. When he asked him, why, why are you going to Dallas? Because Bill Harvey was stationed in Rome at the time. He was head of the CIA station in Rome. Why are you going to Dallas? He was, oh, just to look around. He was vague about it. Later, he said things to Wyatt after the assassination and made Wyatt suspect him, think that he was involved in some way. Mark Wyatt told his grown children that fact. He never testified. He should have testified to the House Assassinations Committee about Bill Harvey, about his suspicions, but he didn't. He was too afraid. There were a number of people within the CIA, I think, who knew what happened. And you know, vague talked about it in vague terms, talked about it to their children and so on, but should have come forward and told the world what they knew. So I think it was a national security hit. And that's what took the life of President Kennedy. It wasn't just the mob, but they used the mob to do their dirty work. Jack Ruby, who silenced Oswald because he knew too much. Lee Harvey Oswald was a low-level intelligence agent when he was sent to the Soviet Union as a defector, he was a fake defector, obviously. He came back, he was totally unmolested after denounced, renouncing his citizenship and saying he was going to give the Soviets top secret documents from his days on a military base in Japan. He knew about the U-2 and other 
top secret programs, the U-2 spy plane. And he brought back a Russian wife with him who was connected to the KGB. The whole thing was ridiculous. He was never thrown in jail. Look at what happened to anyone remotely associated with the Taliban after 9-11. At the height of the Cold War, you're telling me that Lee Harvey Oswald, a defector of the Soviet Union, can come back and given money by the State Department to come back? No. He knew something. He didn't know. He wasn't a top-level guy. He didn't know everything about the plot. I don't even know if he knew that Kennedy was going to be the target. But he wasn't a shooter. There was no evidence to connect him to the sniper's rifle. He was a patsy. That's what he told the, the, the press he shot out in the Dallas police station. I'm a patsy. He knew he'd been, he'd been set up, and he was a low-level guy. He was a, a hapless victim. Uh, as much as uh, anyone in this this whole story. And Jack Ruby, who was basically a thug, a mafia errand boy, uh, was given the job of killing him and silencing forever, which he did. So the whole thing was sleazy. Anyone who has half a brain knows that was sleazy. The American media is cowardly. It's been cowardly for 60 years. American media, American academics, cowardly. Who's really gone after this in a major way? You can count them on one hand. We've done the research, the reporting that needs to be done on this. I'm one of them. But you can count on two hands, maybe. People have really moved the ball forward on this. Lots of citizen researchers have done low-level work, are American heroes for what they've done, but they didn't break through like Oliver Stone did with this film, or like, frankly, I did in a smaller way with Dell Chessboard and Brothers. But I was lucky. Because I'm a journalist, I'm a trained journalist, I'm an experienced journalist, and I was given big advances, for whatever reason, by the book publishing companies that I worked for to produce the two books I did. I had the time to talk to a lot of people, and I did the legwork that had to be done. And anyone who's done the legwork comes to the same conclusion I did, which is the Kennedys were trying to change the country, change the world, and they were killed because of it. And Ted Sorensen called up Jim Douglas, another great hero, who wrote a book, Jeff K. The Unspeakable, and told him after his book came out that he got it right. McNamara called me up and told me the same thing. We got it right. So people who inside knew this story, McNamara, Sorensen, knew what happened. And they told people like Jim Douglas and me that we got the story right. It's just a shame that they didn't go on the record more about this. McNamara comes across, I think that you're fair to him, and it's interesting that he would call you because you're not entirely flattering, and you do pose the question that I think must haunt him, and I'm sure he read this, so where you say, you know, the the mystery is, or the thing that he has to answer is, why did he dutifully carry out Kennedy's schemes to withdraw from Vietnam, but do it in such a way as he could plausibly deny it until after the election, and then immediately just go along with the 180 by that Lyndon Johnson pulls off regarding Vietnam. And so if McNamara called you and said, yeah, you did get the story correct, that's really something. Did, do you have anything else to add to that? Or No, he left that message on my answering machine. I think the band of brothers around the Kennedys really have a lot historically to, to answer for. I think you've opened up a very important subject. And I, of course, interviewed most of them. Schlesinger, Sorensen, Magnamar, and so on, Dick Goodwin. Why didn't you speak out when you had a chance? Dick Goodwin did, to his credit. He wrote a review of an early conspiracy book in the New York Times. He spoke to Bobby Kennedy. He was one of the ones pushing Bobby to do more. 
So Dick Goodwin, after Bobby Kennedy was killed, went nuts for a while. And he went up and started doing arms training, I was told, by Jack Newfield, the reporter who knew him, in New England, because he said, they're not going to kill me. He thought at that point they were killing everyone connected to the Kennedy operation. Jackie Kennedy says she marries Arionassis because they're killing Kennedys in this country after Bobby's killed. I'm going to take my children overseas where they can be safe. So I think Jack and Bobby Kennedy were charismatic leaders, were strong men, were courageous men. And I think the men around them found courage when they were alive. Adam Walensky, Dick Goodwin, Bob McNamara. But when they were eliminated, when they were gone, they fell apart. And that's the truth. And I interviewed these men years later, decades later, and some were near the end of their lives when I talked to them. Most of them are now dead. And it was their last word and testament. They knew that Kennedy had been killed for a reason. They knew that Lee Harvey Oswald, the Warren Report, was a fairy tale made up for the American people. So they slowly, they trusted me. They began to tell me what they really thought happened. And just about every one of them thought that Kennedy had been killed by conspiracy, what Bobby Kennedy had thought. So the fact that they didn't say anything, they didn't do anything during their lifetime is a stain on their memories. And I did ask them, one after the other, why didn't you speak up at the time? I asked Ben Bradley that. Ben Bradley was the head of the Washington Post. He was the top editor of the Washington Post. Woodward and Bernstein, all the famous, you know, investigative kind of energy in America during Watergate. That was Ben Bradley, who was the top editor, played by Jason Robards in the movie. A tough guy. He was a close friend of JFK. He was probably JFK's best friend in the Washington Press Corps. He hung out at the White House, he and his wife, Tony. He wrote a memoir about JFK kind of a real sentimental, sweet book full of anecdotes about Kennedy. I asked Ben Bradley. By then, he was an emeritus. He's still in an office at the uh, Washington Post. I interviewed him in his office. And uh, he was an older man. He couldn't bullshit me. You know, I was a fellow journalist. So he said, well, look, it's in Brothers. You can read that passage. I asked him and Don Hewitt, who was at 60 Minutes. They knew the truth. Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you investigate this? You could have gone behind the House Select Committee in the 70s and done something. You were editor then. Ben told me, you know what? I had just taken over the Washington Post then. People knew I was close to JFK. If I'd made this a major kind of mission in my life to investigate his murder, they would have thought I was playing favorites, that I was obsessed, and it would have hurt my career. It would have brought me down probably as an editor. So that's why he didn't do it. So, you know, they sold out. That's the fact. Don Hewitt, same thing. He knew the truth. He knew it. The CIA and the mafia were involved in the Kennedy assassination. I said, why in 60 minutes? 60 minutes in Washington Post should have broken the story big time. In the late 70s, they could have gone behind the House Assassinations Committee because they always liked to tie their efforts to some kind of government investigation. There was a government investigation. The last one found there was a conspiracy. And people have forgotten that. I think, well, the Warren Report was the last government statement on this crime. It's not. So again, these guys were making too much money. They had too much power. They liked going to the cocktail parties. They rub elbows with the CIA guys, with Richard Helms and others. 
They didn't want to sacrifice that world. Even the Kennedy people, like Arthur Schlesinger, he later told his sons his greatest regret on his deathbed was that he didn't write a book about the CIA. Well, that would have been an interesting book. Very interesting book. Why didn't he do it? He was still playing tennis with fucking Dick Helms from the CIA years later. And he knew what an evil man he was. But hey, they'd been in the OSS together, you know? So they didn't, at the end of the day, want to risk being not invited to the right parties anymore, being ostracized from power, being not on the TV shows anymore, being non-people, non-persons, which is what you risk if you really go after the truth in this country. You risk becoming a non-person. Richard Goodwin is married to, to Doris Kearns Goodwin, right? And, and she goes on like The Daily Show and offers the most corny, generic, banal versions of American history where they really just go into aspects of the presidents. And- well, that's a whole other story. I interviewed Dick Goodwin multiple times. I interviewed Dick in person at their favorite Italian restaurant near their home in Concord. And Doris came. And I felt she was kind of his minder at that point. That Dick Goodwin wanted to tell me much more than she wanted him to tell me. And she would intervene during the interview and say, oh, Dick, please don't go there. Don't say that. She was his cop, I felt. And when she went to the bathroom during the dinner, he would tell me more. So I think she did not want to be ostracized from that world. And she didn't want Dick Goodwin to to speak about the dark truth that he knew or suspected. And he told me he thought the CIA and the mafia had killed Kennedy. So he didn't want to dwell on that. By the point I interviewed Dick, he had decided that he had to listen to his wife. It makes sense, I guess, for her career to not be bursting the bubble of bullshit that is sort of her stock and trade. But the fact that she's there acting as his like cop in a restaurant to me is, is kind of hysterical. And yet it's of a piece of her whole persona. And she was very close. I don't know. As an intern with LBJ down the ranch in Texas. I mean, there's something creepy about Doris Quinn's good one. I know she does interesting books. You know, her book on the FDR White House during World War II was interesting. You know, had some interesting anecdotes. I don't know how truthful it is. She's known as a plagiarist also. Yet you're right. She gets on TV a lot. And she seems to enjoy it along with the other, what do you call them? Court historians. That's right. Like Michael Beschloss, Ken Burns, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Was it David McCullough who got in trouble for making up interviews that he never had with Eisenhower? I think it was maybe David McCullough. No, it was Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose, okay. Who's another court historian. John Meacham is another court historian. Those are the people who get on TV all the time. I've never invited to be on TV. I think that you can understand why. But you're going to get to go on the Covert Action podcast. So that this is, a, this is a, the highest of honors. So I appreciate you staying here so long to talk with us about this. And I'd like to give you a chance to tell our listeners what you think is the continuing relevance of the Kennedy assassination and Robert's failed attempt to try to get to the bottom of it. And and these issues, why are they still important now as this American empire seems to be unwinding kind of irreversibly. What's the significance of these in historical context? To put it simply, the bad guys won. 
I mean, imagine this country, what a different country it would have been if both Kennedys had lived, Bobby Kennedy had been elected president after JFK, if Martin Luther King had lived, if Malcolm X had lived. You know, the bad guys wanted the barrel of a gun. They killed their way through their opposition. And assassination is one of the major tools that they used in the 1960s and 70s to cement their power. So the moral of my work and of other Kennedy researchers is unfortunately the bad guys won. And they took our country on a very dark trajectory. So we end up with a Donald Trump. We end up with a broken political system. We end up with a wealth divide that gets bigger and bigger all the time. We end up with a situation where we can't really fully address climate change, which is, I think, an existential issue, particularly for my children and my children's children for the next generations. You can't really fix anything that's wrong about the country anymore because of the greedy and ruthless people who run the country. And that kind of rule was cemented during the 1960s after the Kennedys were killed and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I think those four people in particular were trying to take the country in a very different direction and would have. So that's the moral, unfortunately, of our story. The bad guys won. The fight goes on, though, to enlighten the American people. That's my job. That's the job of people like me, like writers, other filmmakers. Oliver Stone, thank God he's out there with his new documentary. I'm trying right now to push Hollywood forward Three different sets of producers have optioned my books. They never seem to be able to get them on the screen. Fifteen years later, we'll see if they do. Finally, it's a battle. As Arthur Schlesinger, the court historian for Kennedy, said, history is an ongoing argument. And that's what we can do at the end of the day. It's the only thing we can do is keep doing the work, doing the research, doing the reporting, and trying to get the truth out. Thank you very much for spending time with me today. I always recommend Brothers and the Devil's Chessboard to anybody if I talk to them about this stuff. So uh, it's an honor to be able to talk to you today. And thanks again. Thank you, Aaron. All right. I want to thank Anthony Fest and Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode. I also want to thank Mickey Huff, director of Project Censored, series producer Jim Diaginio of KennedysandKing.com, Abby Martin of Empire Files and Media Roots Radio, and Mock Orange for providing our music. Lastly, I want to thank the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for their efforts in seeking the truth about the political assassinations of the 1960s. Learn more at americantruthnow.org. That about wraps it up, friends. Let's keep chasing the light. <laughs>